Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is not your ordinary deck of playing cards. These cards contain 52 unsolved cases, and with every hand that's played, the stakes are unusually high. They've been dealt to inmates across the nation, and investigators are hoping their tips will stack the odds in favor of the house. Now it's your turn. These victims have been dealt an unfair hand, and it's up to you to deal justice. Somebody, somewhere, has information that could be investigators' ace in the hole. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubasak. And I'm Lori Jennings. In today's episode, we learn about the mysterious disappearance of Tracy Brazel, a 22-year-old hairstylist from Everett, Washington. Tracy was last seen in the early morning hours of May 27, 1995 in Everett, Washington. She was last seen by friends at around 1.45 a.m. Over the years, many details have come to fruition about that night, but unfortunately, just as many questions remain. Here is Jim Scharf. He's a detective at the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office. He speaks to us about Tracy and the Cold Case Card Program. My name is Jim Scharf. I'm a detective with the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office. I work in the Major Crimes Unit, and I've been one of the founding members of the Cold Case Team. One day I went to work and I found a newspaper clipping on my desk. It had been left there by Jim Palmer, who had been a police chief in Briar and was now working in our records department. He had seen this newspaper article about uh, Tommy Ray starting a program of cold case playing cards in Florida, and he thought that was a good idea. So I read the article, and we thought that this might be a good idea for us to make up our own deck of cold case playing cards, because at the time we had about 65 unsolved cases. We easily had enough to feature 52 of them, one on each of the playing cards. We figured that if we do the program and we solve one case, it would be well worth the time spent. You know, when we were going through all of our cases and picking which case we wanted to put on what cards, I ended up picking the Ace of Spades to put Tracy's picture on and her story on. And then I gave a deck of cards to Peggy and she told me Tracy had a tattoo of an ace of spades on her. She thought that was a good omen that this case could get solved. As always, we would love to see the day when there are no faces to put on the cold case playing card. But until that day comes, we will continue telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice. It's time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. Help us deal justice for Tracy Brazel. This is Episode 2, The Tracy Brazel Case, Ace of Spades, Washington Deck. 
This episode of Dealing Justice brings us to Washington, where something ominous looms over the Evergreen State. Tracy Brazel was born on January 29, 1973, in Glen Ridge, New Jersey, to Bill and Peggy Brazel. Her mom and dad tell us about her as a child and how she always wanted to be like her big sister, Lisa. She had a contagious laugh when she started laughing and had a laugh with her. Oh, yeah. She, she had a really contagious laugh. She had her older sister, Lisa. She absolutely adored uh, when her sister got braces, she wanted braces. Her sister got glasses, she wanted glasses. Even though she didn't need them, she just wanted to be like her sister, you know. And even though there was a you know, number of years difference, there's three and a half years difference between the two. As teenagers, they still had the same group. You know, they got all along with all the friends. You know, whether it was Tracy's friends or Lisa's friends, everybody got along, even with the age gap. Well, she, we lived in Bloomfield, New Jersey, on Rogers Place. She was a younger sibling by a couple of years. No, she's a very happy girl, um, a sweet girl, and like I say, happy, always happy, very loving, always hugging and saying I love you and things like that. She had a really good heart. No, she's just a nice person. Tracy had a love for books. She was an avid reader and a great student. She was a good kid. She never got in trouble. She, you know... A very excellent student. She loved to read. Um, as she got older, she loved Stephen King and she loved B.C. Andrews. Uh, she, she did a lot of reading. She was very into reading. In fact, she really wanted to learn things. I taught her how to read when she was two and a half. We worked every night at the blackboard doing her letters and then words. By three, she was reading books. She wasn't extremely athletic, but she did dabble in sports like softball and basketball in middle school. Um, the only sports that she wasn't really into sports, but she did do in middle school, she did basketball for a year. So she enjoyed that. She liked playing softball. She, was, uh, she wasn't much into school at that point, although she was, I consider her brilliant. She was a very smart girl. She really had the ability to do what she wanted to become what she wanted. When Tracy was 13, Bill and Peggy separated and their marriage eventually ended in divorce. When Tracy was 16, her mother, Peggy, decided to move to Snohomish County in Washington State to be near her family. Tracy and her older sister, Lisa, decided to move with their mom and spend time getting to know Peggy's side of the family. Both the girls moved in. My mom, we all trekked out to Washington and we live very close to my brother. So our family was finally brought back together. Bill kept in touch with the girls and they saw each other often. We did remain close. We talked every week. She came out here a couple times to visit us, and I went out there to visit she and her sister. We had a good relationship. Peggy tells us how Tracy knew exactly what she liked and never worried about fitting in, and how she brought a little jersey with her to the Washington state. We came from New Jersey, so peace hair was the thing. Big hair. They call it big hair. (laughs) And she carried that through when we moved to Washington, and out there, it wasn't really quite the style out there, but she continued. She was her own person. She she dressed the way she wanted to. She wore her makeup the way she wanted to. She did her hair the way she wanted to. She was very individual. Tracy wasn't afraid of trying new things, and picking up and moving across country seemed like just one new adventure for her, and one that she decided to embrace on her own terms. 
she was uh, just starting her junior year when we moved out there. But because of all the credits that she, Jersey had, I guess, a stricter school credit system than they did out there. So when she started her junior year out there, she had all her credits. The only thing that she was required to take was Washington State history for a semester. After that, she was done. What she ends up doing, they pay for like trade school for you when you're in high school. In your senior year, they, if you want to go and she, she wanted to go to cosmetology, well, you had to be a senior. But because of her situation, they made an exception. And so she, she had one period of class in the morning and then the rest of the day, she went to cosmetology school, and that's how she got all her hours and her training in so quickly. After the semester, she didn't want to sit for a year and a half, not being able to continue her career. So what she did was she ended up getting her GED instead. She ended up getting her barber's license and her cosmetology license by the time she would have started her senior year. By 17 years old, Tracy was already working on her career. Her mom fully supported her career choice and tells us about those early years in cosmetology school. She just loved doing hair and doing things. And of course, uh, her grandmother and I were her guinea pigs through school as she uh, tried to practice on. And I won't tell you how many times I had to regrow my hair out. <laughs> I was going to say, so tell me, what would she do? Would she give you guys perms or or what's the worst hairstyle she ever gave you? Uh, when she first learned, learned to start cutting, you have to get your barber's license before you get your cosmetology license. So you learn more how to do men's hair. And men's hair evidently was cut differently than women's hair when you layer it. So needless to say, she did a man haircut on my the back of my head when she was supposed to be layering it. <laughs> I couldn't get mad at her. I mean, I just I let it grow out. You know, I mean, she was trying. She she was trying. So, so by that fall, she ended up getting her cosmetology license. You know, she passed her boards and she was good to go. So she just started working. Tracy finished school, had a job and was living independently. Throughout the next few years, she would go on to make new friends and clients who grew to love her. And in pictures, she looks effortlessly content with an 80s Rat Pack vibe. Her shoulder length, wavy brown hair teased up and blue green eyes lined in black eyeliner with her pink glossy lips smiling back at us. Tracy was now in her 20s and Peggy tells us a little about her life at this point. And through the, the cosmetology school, she met her best friend. They'd always spend time together. Her name is, we called her Lanny, but right now, because she's older, she likes to be called Elena, Alana, Alana. You know, she was very independent to get her own apartment. It was very close by where I lived. Very nice area back then anyway. I don't know how it is now. But she mostly lived by herself. She was working at Great Clips in Mill Creek. It's a, a town, you know, not too far, maybe 15 minutes from her apartment, not even she really didn't date, you know. She had a lot of, of guy friends and girls that were friends, but she never really dated. She, I think she was more into her career, moving on with her life, building a life. May 1995. Tracy was working at Great Clips Hair Salon in Mill Creek. She had her own apartment in Linwood, which is in Snohomish County, Washington. 
She had a best friend named Alana, and they loved to hang out and often plan lunches to catch up on each other's lives. She kept in touch with her big sister, Lisa, her dad, Bill, back in New Jersey, and her mom and grandmother who lived only a few miles away, and they would talk every day. We hear from Bill and Peggy about the time leading up to Tracy's disappearance. Not long before she disappeared, she sent a note out with a picture of her in a, uh, a business suit saying that she wanted to change her life, wanted to make a better future for herself. But by the time when I did go out there, it was a couple weeks later I went out to visit she and her sister. She had completely changed, had bleach blonde hair. She dressed differently, you know, not, not as stylish as she was in that business suit. She looked like that singer, Courtney Love. She really just went to work, and when she got out early enough, she would go hang out at the sports bar. And then when she got home, she'd call me. I mean, there's times she wouldn't call me. She'd call me at 1 o'clock in the morning saying, Mom, I just got home. Because, she, you know, she'd go out after to, uh, to play darts or something. You know, but she always called me. didn't matter what time. So Tracy's father, Bill, was seeing changes in her behavior and appearance that concerned him. She had dyed her hair platinum blonde, and according to Bill, she wasn't her usual self. And Tracy was having problems with a coworker at her job and was not happy at her current place of employment. However, she was making plans for the future, including scheduling a lunch date with her best friend Alana and to her mom Peggy. Everything seemed status quo. We're now approaching Memorial Day weekend in 1995. Tracy's mom Peggy and her grandmother were leaving for an international cruise vacation and returning the following week. Peggy tells us about leaving for that cruise and the last time she would see her daughter. The last time I saw Tracy was the day before she disappeared because my mom and I were leaving on a trip out of the country and I stopped by her work to say goodbye to her. And we always gave each other a hug and kiss and said, I love you. That was just a given. Actually, the last words I ever said to her was, I love you, and gave her a hug. And she said, I love you too, Mom. We were out of the country, and then evidently that following day, she quit her job. When I saw her the day before, she seemed okay. But I think there was another employee that she worked with. They really didn't get along, and maybe that was why. I, I don't know. I have no idea of the reason she quit. She gave me no inkling of it the day before. She seemed normal, and that came as a shock to me that she had quit. Saturday, May 27, 1995, Memorial Day weekend. Tracy Brazel had unexpectedly quit her job two days prior and was meeting her friends out for drinks that night. Tracy was wearing a black inside-out sweatshirt cut above the waist with cut-off sleeves, a black leather jacket, and blue jeans. Tracy and her two friends, who happened to be brother and sister, ended the night at Kodiak Ron's pub. After having a few drinks, her friends decided to call it a night. Tracy was playing an arcade game and told the pair to walk out without her. She wanted to finish her game. Tracy was seen leaving Kodiak Ron's pub sometime around 1.45 a.m. Here's Detective Jim Scharf. Tracy had been at Kodiak Ron's which was a bar, on the night of May 26th. She stayed there till the early morning of May 27th. She was there with two friends that were brothers and sisters, uh, Dina and David Conlon. And 
Dina and David had left at about 1.30 in the morning when they gave last call. So they left Tracy there alone, and she was playing a Daytona racing video game. I believe one of them had been with Tracy at Garfield's bar earlier that evening, and then they left there and went to Kodiak Ron's, which was located in a little strip mall at the corner of Old Highway 99 and Airport Road. So the two of them ended up going to that bar, and then later on, the brother, I think, joined them. And they stayed there, and like I said, until 1.30 in the morning when Dina and David left. Later that week, Alana was getting worried. She had tried to reach her friend Tracy to confirm their lunch date, but her calls went unanswered, which was unusual. After leaving several messages and not getting a return call, she finally decided to go by to try to catch Tracy at home. Alana knocked, but there was no response. As she was leaving and pulling out of the complex, there on the road she saw something that made her grow even more concerned. Her car was found parked on the side of the street outside the entrance to the apartment complex. She lived alone in her apartment, so that was definitely out of place. The passenger door window was broken out of it, but there was no glass found outside the car at that location, so the window had been broken somewhere else. The car should have been parked in her stall in front of her apartment, and it wasn't there. Even if she got off work late at night at 10, 11, she would call me every night to say goodnight to me. Of course, I wasn't in the country, so she didn't do that. I didn't know anything. So now you have a 22-year-old girl who is not picking up her phone, not returning calls, and not coming home. The timing for all this was so unfortunate because her job wasn't even expecting her because she had quit it two days earlier. Her mom, who normally heard and talked to her daughter every single day, was on a week-long international cruise, so nobody even suspected anything was wrong with Tracy until now. To recap, Alana is worried about her friend who is not returning her calls, so she goes over to check on her friend and there's no answer. Tracy normally parks her car in the complex parking lot, but it wasn't there. As Alana was leaving the apartment complex, she thinks she sees Tracy's car parked on the road, which is very unusual. She is concerned enough to call Tracy's mom, Peggy, at home, but Peggy is on a cruise and can't be reached. So Alana tells another family member who answers the phone about her concern. According to Peggy, the family member then went to the apartment complex and confirmed it was Tracy's car parked on the street. And... They also discovered her passenger car window was broken. Peggy tells us what the family member did next. They didn't have a key like I, I, to her apartment. So they went into the complex and said, is there any way I can go in the apartment and check on her? And they said, we can't legally do that, but you can try calling with the local police department. When the family member called the police, they did not get the response they were hoping for. According to Peggy, the police informed them that they couldn't enter Tracy's house based on the information they were given. She was, after all, a 22-year-old girl who could have simply gone on an impromptu vacation or perhaps had been intentionally avoiding contact with friends and family. 
Meanwhile, Peggy and her mom are relaxing on a cruise in the middle of the ocean with no idea what is happening back home. Mom and I were on a cruise. I really didn't have any way of contacting anybody. We went to the Bahamas, Philadelphia, then New York, and then up in Montreal. Sunday, June 4th, 1995. The cruise ship that Peggy and her mom are on arrives in Montreal. Their flight back to Washington State was the following day on Monday, June 5th. Peggy got off the ship to call home and confirm their arrangements to be picked up from the airport the following day. That is the first time she learns about Tracy's disappearance. She tells us what that was like. My mom and I were due to come home, and I called home to verify our transportation and being picked up and all. Another member of the household that lived there, he just explained to me how Lanny had called him a few days before and how they were supposed to have their lunch and date and how she couldn't reach Tracy and her car wasn't in her parking slot. And she thought as she was leaving, she thought she spotted it on parked on the street and how she called him and told him. And he went over and checked it out and realized, yes, it was Tracy's car. They, they didn't know what to do. He called my brother and talked to my brother. At that point, again, nobody knew anything, being the fact that he didn't have the key to the apartment or the key to, to her car. You, you kind of panic. And I knew I was going to be home the next day. I just said, look, just have her car towed. Just have it towed to the house and I'll be home tomorrow. And then we're going to have to deal with it. It's nerve-wracking when you have that long flight home. We had to go from Montreal to Toronto. We had a layover in Toronto. Then we had to go to Vancouver, B.C., and we had a layover there. And we had to go through customs there again to go back into the States and fly back down to Seattle. It felt like forever, like you were never going to get there. And your mind just, you know, it just whirls because you don't know what's going on. And it's the unknown that really gets you. Now, remember earlier, Peggy made a split-second decision to have Tracy's car towed back to her house when they told her about it being left on the street with the window smashed. She's now back in Snohomish County and goes to check out Tracy's apartment. But nothing there eases her mind. Now, she's grasping at straws and calls Tracy's big sister, Lisa. Monday, when I got, the first thing I did when I did arrive home was I took the key and went down to her apartment and I got in and it just didn't seem right because she was in the middle of doing laundry. Her washer and dryer had been used. You know, the clothes were still in them. Her, her bedding was laying on the floor in the hallway, like to be the next load to be washed. Her cat was missing. So what I did was I went home and I called her sister and I said, do you know if she went out to visit your dad? I thought, well, maybe she went out to New Jersey. And she said, no, she didn't know where Tracy was. Explained to her everything, what happened, how she found the car and how the police came, but they wouldn't go into the apartment because they can't and the whole deal. So she called her dad and to see if she was there. And, um, she wasn't, and then I guess she explained to him what happened. Here's Bill Brazel, Tracy's father. My daughter Lisa called me and said Tracy had been missing since that Thursday. She told me that her cat was gone. 
and uh, got a little suspicious, but I'm very hard to believe that something would have happened to my daughter. It's like um, I have a better chance winning the lottery than uh, having her, you know, murdered or abducted. That was the first time I did here was from my daughter, Lisa. You know, and I, uh, I asked Lisa when she had called if uh, Tracy maybe was staying at a friend's house or if she had taken a trip somewhere. And Lisa told me no. Um, she said whenever Tracy goes somewhere or does something like that, she always tells Lisa what she's doing. It was suspicious, but here again, I, my hope was that she was okay. Monday, June 5th, 1995. In a panic and wondering where her daughter was and what could be happening to her, Peggy filed a missing persons report for Tracy Brazel, and life would never be the same. Everything goes through your mind. You run every scenario through your mind, you know, and you just, you can't, you can't figure it out. It just, your mind just wanders. Like, is it, was it this? Was it that? Is she here? Is she there? What actually happened? And it's not knowing is what really panics you. Here's Detective Jim Scharf. Well, I had just gone into the major crimes unit from the child crimes unit in May of 1995. And... Greg Renta was in the unit. He didn't have a partner, so he contacted me and asked me to assist him on a missing person case involving Tracy Brazel. So I ended up going with him out to her apartment and we searched it. And then the next day we started talking to her friend that may have seen her last. We knew something was definitely wrong. Tracy has now been officially reported missing and her last whereabouts was documented at Kodiak Ron's Pub on May 27th. Eight days have passed. Well, as we got detective reports and some friends that were with her that night, she was with a couple she had known and they left and she started playing some games, you know, the uh, race games and so on. And uh, that was it. And Tracy, they said, left maybe about 1.30 from Kodiak Ron's which was the place the club she went to a lot. Snohomish County detectives scour Tracy's apartment and also go to Peggy's house to take a look at Tracy's car. It was a white 1993 Ford Probe. The detective showed up at my house. He looked at the car. and I didn't touch the car, and I purposely didn't. Maybe watching too many crime movies, I don't know. When I got home, the car was in the driveway. Because it had been raining, we um, pushed the car into the garage, and we, we left it there. Yet the next day when the detective came, he uh, went out and he checked it for fingerprints. The, the whole car was wiped clean. There was nothing on inside nor outside. Nothing of Tracy's fingerprints, nobody's. It was wiped down. It was clean. And her sun visor was also broken off. And the window, we realized, the passenger window was broken inward because that car was vacuumed out completely, except there was a few shards of glass over the back seat. And that's how we knew it was broken inward, not outward. When you break a window inward, all the glass is going to go into the car. It's going to go flying in. Whoever did this, vacuumed, detailed, cleaned everything up inside, but kind of missed some of the little pieces of glass that was stuck on the, up above the back seat that went to that window. Realizing now more than ever that time was of the essence, Peggy was not content to sit back and wait on answers. 
Here she tells us about those first few weeks and the efforts that were made to find her daughter. We finally came to the conclusion something happened. So a friend of mine was friends with a guy that in King County who was search and rescue and he had his own dog. So she put me in touch with him and he came up and he, you know, looked things over and what he did before they impounded the car. He took some of that brush. She had a probe, which is very low to the ground. And it was all like, as if you drove to a field, how all the brush gets stuck underneath your car. And that was all packed underneath her car. At that point, our police department were very low funded. They didn't have a lot of funds to do a lot of stuff. This guy, Andy, what he did was he knew somebody down at the UW, University of Washington, that specialized in that kind of thing, agriculture. And sometimes you can tell if you analyze the the brush or the grass, what area it came from. So he did that for us because he worked with my detective on this. Everything he he was an ex police officer for seventeen years before he went to search and rescue. So he knew what to do with the proper way. So he had that analyzed, but it ended up it was so common we couldn't figure out where. So from that point. What he did was every day, every day for three months, I went out with Andy and we searched different areas because of her speedometer. We figured out what she had set it out when she got gas, how far it was to her apartment and what the radius might have been where she would have been taken. So we figured out roughly we're going to start with 10 miles. So each day, Andy would take a topographical map. He'd map a section. And we would go out and we'd search for the dog. And then he would write all the information down, kept track of time, where, when, everything. And then that would be submitted to my detective. Andy didn't charge anything to do it. He just did it for me because he wanted to help. So that was a tremendous help for us and the police department because they worked together. They kept in touch with each other on everything that was done. And a lot of people ask me, how could you do that? How could you go? What would happen if she was found? And that's a hard one to answer because I don't know how I would have responded. But in the same respect, you have that the need to go. You you want you want to you want to find her. So that kind of wanting to find her and what if you did that you just force yourself to do. As it turns out, Tracy's car would hold a plethora of information. When detectives inspected Tracy's car, they noticed a small drop of blood and gathered it as evidence. This would prove to be a game changer, but it would take years for this evidence to come to fruition. And unfortunately, another girl would pay the ultimate price. A couple of months after Tracy disappeared, Patty Berry went missing Patty was a dancer at Honey's. It was a strip club. And when she left the club, her tire had a low tire. So they aired it up with Fix-A-Flat and told her to go to gas station and air it up on her way home. Stopped about a mile away at a car wash that had an air pump there. And she was attacked while she was airing up her tire at the car wash and stabbed to death and pushed into her car. And her body was taken up 
and dumped in the woods behind the Everett Mall. And her car was brought back and left near the car wash and was full of blood. And all of her belongings and dance costumes were spewing about the area. So the family started looking for her and reported her missing. Her family ended up finding her car in that alley by the car wash and called the sheriff's office. So that started a homicide investigation instead of just a missing person case. A week after she was reported missing on August 8th, a group of children were playing in the woods near Everett Mall when they discovered Patty's body. She was nude from the waist down. Autopsy results revealed that she died from 18 stab wounds. Patty's body was found mostly nude in the woods. So we believe that it was a a sexual offense, even though they couldn't determine if she'd been raped. She was last seen in the same area where Tracy was last seen. So in the back of my mind, I always had an idea that both of the cases could be related. And just like Tracy's case, although they had a body, Patty Berry's case went cold. When the Washington State Cold Case Unit compiled their cold case playing cards, both women were included in the deck. Patty Berry, the ace of clubs, and Tracy Brazel, the ace of spades. Almost 10 years later, in 2004, hoping there were enough updates in forensic technology, Detective Scharf submitted the steering wheel in Patty Berry's case to the Washington State Crime Lab for analysis. I sent the steering wheel from her car into the crime lab to try to get DNA off of it. And they ended up coming up with a DNA profile and they entered it into CODIS and they didn't get any matches. So it wasn't until a few years later that we actually got a hit in CODIS that identified Danny Giles as being responsible for the DNA left on Patty's steering wheel. And that was on August 20th of 2008. So that really kind of kick-started that case up again. And I always believed that the person that killed Patty probably also killed Tracy. So I looked at the evidence in Tracy's case and found that there was a swab of blood from the outside of her passenger car door that had never been sent in to the crime lab. So I had that sent in. And in March of 2010, it also matched to Danny Giles. It wasn't until then that we realized that we were correct in our assumptions that the same person was probably responsible for both of these cases. The DNA matched to convicted felon Danny Roth Giles. At the time they discovered this match, Danny Giles was incarcerated for an indecent exposure charge with sexual intent that had occurred in 2005. He had flashed a University of Washington student during rush week, and therefore his DNA was then put into CODIS as part of his conviction. He had also had other previous convictions for sex crimes, including a 1987 rape conviction. Detective Jim Scharf discusses what he thinks happened in Patty's case. I always felt that Danny Giles was there at the car wash, maybe cleaning out his car or something. And I don't know if he just looked at this as an opportunity or if he recognized her as a dancer from Honey's. 
He told his girlfriend that he always wanted to slit the throat of a whore. In May of 2011, authorities officially announced they had identified Danny Ross Giles as the suspect in both Tracy Brazel's disappearance and in the murder of Patty Berry. Tracy's father, Bill, tells us who broke the news to him that there was a match and what went through his mind. I was hoping she'd reappear or that somebody would find her somewhere in whatever condition she was, but nothing came of it. We just kept searching and searching with the investigators. And um, Who called you? Who told you we got a hit? Jim Sharp. He called me and said, we think we found the guy who did it and told me his name and he said it was all linked to the DNA between the two cars because Tracy had a, a blood splotch on her car. But Patty's was, of course, a, a river of blood. And he told me that. And I, I was in shock. I was uh, kind of thankful in one sense, but I was angry in another sense because I knew Tracy was gone. If he did what he did to Patty, I don't know what he did to Tracy, but probably a similar thing. I was kind of in a state of fright, I guess you could call it. I was kind of devastated, but still had hope that she was alive. That four-letter word, hope, but unfortunately. Once they notched that DNA, then I knew, especially what happened with Patty, you realize what truly could have happened, but in the same respect, you kind of block it. You don't want to believe it. After so many years, we just want to find Tracy. Giles was charged with the murders of both women in December 2012. Giles was convicted of Patty's murder in November 2014 and sentenced to nearly 50 years in prison. After his conviction in Patty's case, the charges against him and Tracy's disappearance were dropped. They were dismissed without prejudice, meaning they could be refiled in the future. I ended up arresting Danny Giles on November 16th of 2012 for the murder of Tracy Brazel and the murder of Patty Berry. We didn't have Tracy's body, so I had to do what they call a due diligence. We sent out 645 letters to agencies all over the United States trying to look for any contact with her to show that she was alive anywhere. By having all those letters returned with no contact, it showed us that she was probably dead, which is what we needed to show a jury if we took the case to trial. Well, when the prosecutor filed the charges on both murders and it went in front of a superior court judge, he decided that it was prejudicial to Danny Giles to try Tracy's case along with Patty Berry's case because there were some differences and her body had never been found. So he separated the two trials. And at that point, the prosecutor's office decided to drop the case against Danny for killing Tracy until a little bit more information could be gathered. Hopefully her body would be found so that it would be easier to prove to the jury that this was a murder. So we went to trial on Patty Berry's case and Danny was convicted of that murder and sentenced to 47 and a half years. Tracy's body has yet to be found. For Tracy's family and friends, their greatest wish is to bring her home and put her to rest. I miss my girl. 
I miss her very much every single day. I hope someday we'll have some answers to all this. And I hope someday that the family will get some closure. You know, as you watch her friends grow up and have their kids and their families and stuff, you can't help but to wonder what, what her marriage might be and how happy she might be and how she missed out on all that. We missed out as being grandparents for her kids. And, you know, it, it's hard, very hard. A few years ago, we started working a little bit with John Edward. I, he's another great psychic. I don't know if you know who he is. I do. And uh, he told us that well, Tracy was dead. And he told me that Tracy's body was put into like a, an elevator shaft or it could be a mine shaft, some kind of a shaft. Her body was dropped in there by Giles. That was the closest clue we got to finding Tracy. Jim Scharf has an idea of the area he thinks her body may be in, but he doesn't know the particular location. I just want to let parents know that they're not alone with regard to um, losing a child this way. There's always hope. It doesn't always turn out the right way, but uh, there's always hope. Detective Jim Scharf continues to hold out hope that Tracy will be located and brought home to her family. She still hasn't been found, and that's the main reason that I wanted to do this podcast with you is so that word would get out that Tracy's body has never been found, and we're very interested in recovering it to return her to the family and let them have some answers and be able to give her a proper burial. He also has a message for Danny Giles. If Danny Giles is listening to this, he's going to get out of jail eventually. And if he's willing to give us the location of the body, I'm sure that it would carry a lot of weight with the prosecutor to not seek any more time than what he's already gotten because the family wants the answers and they're not concerned about him doing any more time in prison for this. They just want to have Tracy's body back. So often, families tell us that their need for vengeance wanes over the years and the desire for answers and to put their loved one to rest waxes. It becomes an insatiable desire and longing that never goes away. For Tracy's family, there will never be closure, there will never be peace, but there is hope that one day they will have answers. The search continues for Tracy Elizabeth Brazel. Her father, Bill, is currently writing a book in her honor, and her mom, Peggy, continues to search for her daughter and keep in touch with Detective Jim Scharf in hopes of finding more information. Detective Jim Scharf is set to retire this summer. He says finding and bringing Tracy home to her family would be the perfect ending to a long and successful career in law enforcement. Here is a poem in Tracy Brazel's honor. What we have once enjoyed, we can never lose. All that we love deeply becomes a part of us. Helen Keller If you have information regarding the Tracy Brazel case or anything for Detective Scharf, you can leave your confidential tips by calling 1-800-222-TIPS. Thanks, guys, for joining us on Season 2, Episode 2 of Dealing Justice, the Tracy Brazel case. I just feel so fortunate that we got a chance to speak with Bill and Peggy. And I got to tell you, getting to speak with Detective Jim Scharf from Snohomish County, 
was just amazing. Every once in a while you meet a detective or somebody works in law enforcement and you can really tell how much they care. And I felt like that in this case. He really did. He had a passion that it really seems, especially with him retiring, coming his retirement coming up. I just felt the passion that he really wants to see this case solved for her family. Absolutely. And in speaking with Peggy and Bill, they both mentioned how much Jim has meant to them on this. You and I get to speak with families I and mean, we get to hear their stories. And something that is always heartbreaking is that they're not always met with somebody that they feel has empathy for them. And that's got to be really hard when you just really are looking for an island in your grief and you're not met with that. So I just think when we get a chance to talk to somebody like Jim, it's just an honor. So Tracy Brazel, uh, I think that this is a pretty clear cut case. Um, I just, uh, I it, it weighs on my mind to think of what Tracy would have been and what she would have done with her life. Yeah, especially like in her description. I mean, I'm from New Jersey. She's from New Jersey. And just the whole 80s vibe that she had around her, I could so relate. Like she just reminds me of myself, even though she was much younger. There's a lot of similarities that you could see. And she had that independent spirit that I kind of wish I had in those early 20s. You could almost feel that. And I'm glad her family shared that. Absolutely. So I think that it's pretty clear cut. I don't think anybody questions whether Danny Giles was involved in this. Basically, Tracy goes missing from Kodiak Ron's um, and she's not seen since. Danny had been known to frequent Kodiak Ron's. There's that connection. So there is the belief that Danny went back to the apartment with her. And, and for whatever reason, that's not known that something happened at the apartment. I do want to point out, too, that we are trying to be in touch with Danny. We want to try to talk with him. And so we'll keep you updated if we make any progress on that. But also, Danny had been known to, and that's why I think some tips can come in, too. If anybody knows Danny Giles from the past or past girlfriends or relationships, during our interview with the detective, I was shocked when he said that Danny had told an ex-fiance that he wanted to do something horrible. Slit the throat of a whore, I think yeah, I is what he said. That. Yeah. And that was in reference to Patty Berry's murder. So it's like he told people things. We know that the DNA links them. Again, I don't think anybody is really questioning whether Danny Giles is the person who has the answers to where Tracy Brazel is. Sometimes the parents do just get to the fact with Look, I don't I don't care about pressing charges. I don't care about getting you more time. I just want to know where my daughter is. I need to bring her home. I need to have an end to this because these parents pretty much know that she's no longer with us. But still, you just never know until you get that final detail to be able to lay your child to rest, keeping them in this horrible state of grief, but yet grieving without a body. Right. It's just I think it's just one of those things that they need answers. Bill had said. When you know what happened to Patty, which they do, you know, you can kind of paint the picture of what possibly could have happened to Tracy. And as hard as that is, I still think it's answers. You know, so many of the families say just the not knowing, just the having no idea. Even though we know Danny Giles knows where Tracy's body is, it's still just being able to put her to rest to just, I, you know, and I can't describe it. I haven't been there. But each and every family we talk to tells us the same thing. 
And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking hearing their stories and just hearing that pain and desperation. So hopefully, you know, sharing the stories and talking and maybe somebody's reminded of something. Maybe somebody doesn't even know the detectives are searching for information on Danny Giles. Yeah. And something to point out, you and I have talked about, I would love to see people go out there and search to find Tracy. Detective Sharp seems to think that that's completely not out of the realm that she would be able to be found even after all these years. Every time she got gas, she would start her odometer over. And so based on that, they know that she had just recently gotten gas. So she could not have went that far because he took her car. She more than likely is in that 10 mile radius. So that was his M.O., both in Tracy and Hattie's. He would use their car to dispose of the bodies. Danny Giles, I think it's one of those things that we can hold out hope that he will come forward and he will have something to say. But even if he doesn't, we hope that you guys out there, somebody has to know something. Danny, talk to somebody. He told somebody something. Maybe it was a relationship with you, you had with him before. When it comes to murder cases or disappearances, The police are not interested in any of the minor stuff, whether you were out with him smoking weed or doing something worse than that. The police do not care about that. That's not important details. What is important is that if you have any information, you can literally change this family's life and give them some sense of peace. And we just ask that you come forward. And you can do that confidentially as well. So thank you so much for joining us. And just hearing these stories just means so much to the families. Thanks guys so much for listening to the stories and for liking and for sharing. Thank you. And we'll see you on the next episode. Like us on Facebook at Cold Case Playing Cards for all the latest information on this case and other cards we'll be featuring on future episodes. Feeling Justice is written, produced, and hosted by Jennifer Dubasak and myself, Lori Jennings. Our sound design is by John Schaub. Our executive consultant is the Cold Case Playing Cards creator, retired FDLE special agent, Tommy Ray. If you want to help us spread the word about these victims' stories, please subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you for listening and join us next time on Dealing Justice. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.